Daniel chapter 7. We've made our way through this book and we've reached the seventh chapter. And so that's where we're going to spend some time together this morning. First Samuel chapter 7. Some of you may have heard his name, Stephen Covey. According to Stephen Covey, one of the highlights of what he calls a highly effective person is self-renewal. Covey calls it sharpening the saw. Sharpening the saw means having a balanced, systematic process for self-renewal, he says. Without this discipline, Covey writes, the body becomes weak, the mind becomes mechanical, the emotions become raw, and the spirit becomes insensitive. I don't know about you, I've been there. I've been there. I've been there far more times than I care to admit. And I don't like it. And so every time I come across a passage in the Bible that talks about spiritual renewal, I listen hard. How about you? Our passage this morning, I think, is one of those passages. It's one of those passages that talks about spiritual renewal. doesn't tell us everything on that particular topic, but it tell, does tell us what I would consider to be some of the fundamental things And in particular, it highlights what I'm going to refer to throughout this message as four principles for getting back on track when we lose our way. And the first of those principles we're going to discover early on in this very first part of chapter 7, looking at verse 2. Would you just read that with me? The passage says, It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, and all the people of the Israel of Israel mourned and sought the Lord. You see the phrase there? I don't know if you underline your Bible, but this might be helpful. There are two key phrases there. The ark remained at another place than where it belonged. Kiriath-Jerim, it's referred to as. It remained there 20 years. The ark is out of its place. And as a result of the ark being out of its place, the Bible says, the people of Israel mourned. Now that's going to be our principle. That's going to be our first principle of spiritual renewal. I just refer to it simply in this way. No ark, no satisfaction. Now let me remind you, last week we were talking about the ark and I showed you this sketch that's called the Hiram etching. An archaeologist walked into a tomb. Uh, This uh, comes from about the time of King Solomon. And uh, he saw this on a sarcophagus. It's a king sitting on his throne, and there are these two cherubs or two angelic beings by his side, and then there's this box underneath his feet. Now, this Hiram etching is probably a, a literal interpretation among the pagan nations of what the Ark of the Covenant represented spiritually. Now, in the Ark of the Covenant, you didn't see God the king, You saw the two cherubs, and they actually faced one another, and that little footstool where the Lord, uh, where the king is sitting, uh, that footstool is the ark itself, the ark proper. Now, as I was looking at that passage, or that uh, picture last week, it reminded me of something kind of familiar. Maybe you've seen this before, so let me show you this next uh, slide here. Any of you remember Bill Bright? And uh, the thrones, the various thrones of life. Some of us uh, came to know the Lord through uh, a little track uh, 
have you discovered the, the wonderful spirit, spirit-filled Christian life? That's basically where this is from. And it talks about three ways or three postures uh, of Christian living. Uh, the first is the self-directed life. It's, uh, it's to the left of the screen there. And you see the little S? That's the self sitting on the throne of life. And all those little dots, well, those are the various pieces of life. And, and they're big and small, and they're kind of all messed up. They're all out of place. And outside the circle of life, you see the cross. Jesus Christ isn't in this life. Messed up life. That's sort of the point of this, uh, this first circle. Now, um, then at the uh, bottom circle, you'll see... No, I'm sorry, the the right-hand circle, you'll see that self is sitting on the throne. Christ is now in the life. Uh, The life is still kind of all messed up. The circles, the little dots are out of place and they aren't organized just yet. That's the self-directed life that has Jesus in it. And then at the bottom, you'll see the Christ-directed life. Now Jesus is on the throne Self is at the bottom of the throne, and all the little dots are arranged. Now, that may be overpressed. Both you and I know that when Jesus is on the throne of life, all the little dots aren't always quite that arranged. But that's really quite a powerful statement, and it's made a lasting impact on my life, and I'm guessing on some of your lives as well. As I was thinking about this, I thought, that, that is a really good illustration of the role the ark was to play in Israel. The ark represented the king of Israel directing the national life of Israel and putting things in order. Okay, so far, so good. Now, as I began to think about that, though, I thought, you know, we need to update this graph just a little bit. And so I I want to explore with you another way of considering this ark and the satisfaction it brings, uh, I want to show you something uh, that I'm going to call three versions of Psalm 23. Three versions of Psalm 23. Now, version number one you're familiar with. Many of you may have memorized this particular passage in the Bible. It's Psalm 23. This is the Christian view of life. Using contemporary uh, terminology, let's call this the pre-modern view. This is before the onslaught of science. This is before the onslaught of the Enlightenment. This is before the modern age. This is the way Christians thought before all those things. Now listen real carefully. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you get it? Christ on the throne, me at the foot of the throne, Life all well organized. Psalm 23. Now something really interesting happened right around the 1700s, the 1800s. A new new version of Psalm 23, if I can put it that way, slipped into culture. And it did it with a loud bang. It, It came on with the thrust of an attack. It was almost like the oil spill in the Gulf. Uh, where this, this, this fountain, this new 
form of thinking about the psalm began to spew oil into that original form. And so let me read you what I would now call the modern form of Psalm 23. It goes like this. I am my own shepherd. I acknowledge no other Lord. I will not want. I make myself lie down in green pastures. I lead myself beside quiet waters. I have no soul. I lead myself in paths of self-fulfillment for my own sake. I embrace death as a natural part of life and refuse to fear it, but focus instead on the here and now. My success and my achievements, they comfort me. I do everything in my power to assure that my cup overflows. Given the progress man has made, I expect goodness and mercy to follow me all the days of my life. Who knows? We might even discover a cure for cancer. Either way, I'll be satisfied because nothing, not even the universe, lasts forever. Recognize the voice? That's that oil that has been spewing into the modern world. Now, we talk rather glibly today about the Western view of this and the Western view of that. That's the Western view. The Western view is Christianity in a form of battle, not one that we wanted, but one that was foisted upon Christians by the modern perspective. It's sort of a battle between those two views. And we as believers tend to stand in one of those two psalms. Sometimes a foot here, sometimes a foot here. The world tends to stand firmly in the modern psalm and the, and the Christian tries to stand as firmly as it can in Psalm 23. That's the Western world. Now, as a result of that Western view, that combat, that, that battle that's going on in life, I don't know if you've thought about this. I was flying home uh, one day from a trip that I uh, had taken uh, with the denomination I worked with for a while with our own free church family. And the lady that sat next to me, sat next to me, was from Chicago, a young lady, bright, sharp, aggressive. She found out somehow that I'd been involved in Christian ministry, and boy, she just laid into me right early on. This is when the whole news of some of the abuses in the Roman Catholic Church were taking place, and she lived up the street, and she just waylaid. What about all the horrible things the church has done? I mean, don't you know that, you know, we burned witches at the stake? I mean, you awful Christians, don't you know you did that? Don't you know that you've driven science from the world? Don't you know that you've persecuted people wherever you've been? What about the Inquisition, all these things? I waited, 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 waited to see if I could get something in. And at one point, you know, I tried to slip it. You know, I'm not the great evangelist. Some, some people tell these stories and it all turns out all right. I, I'm not one of those guys. I waited for a minute. I tried to get something in. And I said... Hmm, it sounds to me like uh, you've uh, espoused the modern worldview. Yes, she said, I, I'm a modern. I said, isn't it true that more people have been killed in the 20th century by the modern secular state, think about it, World War One, World War Two, all the kinds, than ever happened under anything called Christianity? Now, for just a second, I saw a little flitter of, oh, trappedness, and then she moved right on, just ignoring the point. But you see, you see that that modern worldview, it has taken us in a direction 
It is an oily spill that spewed up. And now let me introduce you to this third perspective because now we're reaping even further into the, what I would call the postmodern Psalm 23. It's a little longer, but it's where many of our young people are. So listen carefully to postmodern Psalm 23. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless, easily frustrated, often disappointed. It's a jungle out there. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some very dark paths. Still, I insist I want to do what I want when I want, how I want. But life is so confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I fear the big hurt, the final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. I know bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really my friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really there for me except me. And I'm so much about me. It's all about me. Sometimes it's just sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free-falling into the void? Sartre said, hell is for other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death. And then I die. That's the postmodern perspective. That's the postmodern view. That's where many of our young people are. Not philosophically necessarily. They haven't thought this through deeply. This is just the air that they tend to breathe in the schools, in the TVs, in the movies, wherever they are. This is where people are. You see the difference and you see the downward progression. That's the first thing we need to know about spiritual renewal. If there's no ark, if there's no God sitting in the throne, if there's no Lord there, if there's no shepherd shepherding us, then there is no satisfaction. And the further away from the ark we move, the worse it gets, the darker life becomes. The same principle is true for Christians as for non-Christians. My ability to experience true satisfaction in this life is directly dependent on where Jesus is in relation to it. If He's on the edge, darkness. If He's at the foot of the throne rather than ruling it, less darkness perhaps, but still darkness. If He's on the throne, then I'm finding more increasing of Psalm 23 in my life. I like the way theologian Sinclair Lewis has, or Sinclair Ferguson has put this. He says, His, Christ's glory, is the sun around which the whole of life must revolve if there is to be the light and life of God. 
in our experience. That's the first principle, isn't it? When you find yourself wandering, when you find yourself drifting, when you find yourself... Ask yourself, where is Jesus in my life? Is he on the throne? That's principle number one. Principle number two is in verses uh, three through six. Read those along as I... Or follow along with me as I read them. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel... If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts... By the way, that word returning is something of a technical word in the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word shuv. It actually means repent. It's that repentance word, and that's going to give us our theme for this. If you're really repenting... Now, repentance in the Old Testament was almost a a turning of all of life, and you can see it here. In fact, these are going to be the elements of it. If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of your foreign gods. That's the negative. There is a true biblical negative. There are some things that Christians don't do. There are some things that the Bible says don't do. It's not good for you. A true biblical negative. Get rid of the foreign gods and the asterisks. By the way, the foreign gods were the men. The asterisks were the women gods. And uh, they tended to get together. And uh, it was all real nice sort of a party time. And there are kinds of religions that do celebrate, quote, sexuality in the name of freedom. The Bible says, no, 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 no. That's just not the way it works in the There's a true biblical negative. Get rid of that kind of stuff. Then there's a change of mind. Commit yourselves to the Lord. And then there's a true biblical positive. Serve Him only and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites did that. They put away their bales and their asterisks and they served the Lord only. Now it's in that last part of verse uh, 6 that I want to focus on. They did a couple of symbolic actions. They poured out water and so on and so forth. Those are just actions to show the reality of what they were after. But in the middle of verse 6 it says, On that day they fasted and there they confessed. And Samuel, it says in the last part of that verse, was the leader of Israel. Now, isn't that interesting? We've been studying the Ark of the Covenant for three weeks now in a book that's entitled Samuel. Have any of you asked, where's Samuel? Where has Samuel been for three chapters? Where was Samuel in all this? Why do you start a book with Samuel, then you spend three chapters talking about the ark, and now only after those three chapters you bring Samuel back? Where has Samuel been? I'd like to suggest to you that that's a spiritual principle of renewal. Until we're ready to repent, there's no reason for leadership in our life. No repentance, no leadership. But as soon as we're willing to turn back to follow the Lord, guess what? God's leadership will be there and it will be available. By the way, the Protestant reformers discovered this principle early on in the Protestant Reformation. Remember hearing the story of Martin Luther who nailed the 95 thesis on the Wittenberg door? Do you know what his first of those 95 thesis was? It was simply this. All of the Christian life is a life of repentance. Now, now that sounds kind of negative until you begin to understand that he was using that word repentance in a big, broad way to describe, oh, 
the whole movement of the way we live as Christians, and so here's, here's J.I. Packer's definition. Let's take a look at this real quickly. Packer says, I think correctly, biblically speaking, repentance means turning from as much uh, of as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And when you grow in any one of those areas, you repent just a little bit better. So the more I learn about my sin, the more I grow in my ability to repent. The more I know about myself, the more I grow in my ability to repent. The more I grow in my knowledge of the Lord, the more I grow in my ability to repent. I want to park here for just a second because this is so fundamental to the way we live our lives. Let's visit the New Testament. Let me show you how this works itself out in general principle. So general principle, taking a look in the New Testament at Ephesians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul is writing. And notice the highlighted, uh, the words that I put up there in highlight. Uh, Paul says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. There's the negative. There's the getting rid of that we saw in 1 Samuel. There's a remarkable consistency in the teaching of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Apostle Paul doesn't say anything that wasn't already said in Samuel. This is the getting rid of, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Now that middle phrase, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, that's parallel to the commitment that we saw in 1 Samuel. That's that transformation of the mind. That's one of the reasons why we studied the Bible so consistently in a church like this. It's not that we think that we want to become just deep students of Scripture. It's that we know that when we study the Bible and we study it correctly, the Word does its washing power, its transforming power, its changing power. It helps me to know what to get rid of and it helps me to know what to put on. That's why Rick just so consistently focuses on biblical instruction to be made new in the attitude of our minds. And then here's the positive side. And to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now this next slide that I'm going to show you gives us an exhibit of how that works. The Apostle Paul is still speaking. See the three elements there? Therefore each of you must put off what? In this case, he says, falsehood. Stop telling lies. Don't be false with one another. And speak, there's the positive, speak truthfully to your neighbor. Now here's why. The for. This is the commitment part, the transforming of the mind part. For we are all members of one body. That's the theology part that makes the other two parts work. It gives them their rationale. Exhibit B, he who has been stealing, oh, there's a convert, somebody who used to live that kind of life. Paul says, stop it, quit it, don't steal any longer. But instead, and here's the true biblical positive, work doing something useful with your own hands. And here's the explanation part, that he may have something to share with those in need. Now let's bring this down just even just a little bit more powerfully. I want to share with you a quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis has this marvelous statement about the biblical negative. It's in his book, Mere Christianity. And he says this, The problem of the Christian life comes the very moment you wake up each morning. 
All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back. In listening to that other voice. Taking that other point of view. Letting that other, larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing through. That's mortification. That's the Christian principle of putting off. Theologians call it mortification. And you know, we start every day doing that. Now, you don't just stop there. There are other periods during the day where the beasts come rushing back again, and I've got to do it all over again. That's the biblical negative. Now, on the other side, and this is the biblical positive, I'm going to show you a passage from Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. But rather than just read the passage, here's a quote from Max Lucado in one of his writings. And I've got this in my devotional book, and I don't know where the source is, so you'll just have to take my word for it. Max Lucado says this about this passage and makes a very practical, positive step. The next 12 hours, I will be exposed to the day's demands. It is now that I must make the choice. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, I am free to choose. And so, I do. I choose. I choose love. No occasion justifies hatred. No injustice warrants bitterness. I choose love. Today, I will love God and I will love what God loves. I choose joy. I will invite God to be the God of all my circumstances, good and bad. And I will rejoice. I choose peace. I will live forgiven. And I will forgive others so that I may truly live. I choose patience. I will overlook the inconveniences of the world. Instead of cursing the one who takes my place, I'll invite them to do so. I choose kindness. I'll be kind to the poor, for they are alone. I'll be kind to the rich, for they are afraid. I'll be kind to the unkind, for that is how God treated me. I choose goodness. I will go without a dollar before I take a dishonest one. I choose gentleness. Nothing is won by force, and so I choose to be gentle. I choose faithfulness. Today, I will keep my promises. I choose self-control. I refuse to allow this world that will rot rule the world that's coming, the eternal. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. To these I commit my day. If I succeed, I'll give thanks. If I fail, I'll seek God's grace. And then, 
when this day is done, I'll place my head on my pillow and I will rest. Do you get it? Do you get it? No repentance. No repentance, he says. And there's no need for leadership. But when repentance is there, the path is clear, isn't it? The path is clear. The third thing I see in this passage is in verses 7 through 13. And it's about prayer. Uh, no prayer, no victory. The, the Israelites, as soon as they decide to give themselves back to the Lord, they find themselves attacked by the Philistines. There's no surprise there. We learn that. As soon as I rededicate my life, as soon as I give myself to Jesus all over again, guess what? All kinds of problems, all kinds of issues, all kinds of things start rushing at me. It's the last thing the world, the flesh, and the devil wants me to do. And so all three gang up to attack me. That's exactly what happened here. Since the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah in verse 7, and so they came attacking them. And, and the whole issue is the Israelites are reaching out to Samuel and say, Samuel, pray for us. Samuel, pray for us. The, the key verses that Samuel does, and I want you to see, oh, look at verse 10, right about the middle of the verse. This is an interesting passage. It says that in answer to Samuel's prayer, that day the Lord thundered. Now, isn't that interesting? That day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. Thunder? Scaring these people off? I don't know about you, but thunder isn't all that frightening. I mean, it can be. What's going on here? Remember we were talking about the god Baal. Guess who Baal was in the Old Testament? He was the god of thunder. The way the Lord chose to answer Israel's prayer was a way that fit the particular circumstances that the Israelites found themselves in. That's exactly the way it's going to be with you and me. I may not need thunder in answer to my prayer. I may think I know what I need in answer to my prayer. But God does know what I need, and whether it's thunder or what I request or something that He gives me that I wasn't expecting, either way, I can be assured that God is going to respond in the right way. I do know this, however. There's no prayer. There's no victory. I mentioned C.S. Lewis earlier on. I think some of you know he's one of my favorite authors. So I've, even, I've even read the children's books. I'm ashamed to tell you. There's this one C.S. Lewis children's book. It's called the, the Last Battle. And it describes in this last battle this group of dwarfs. Now, at this point in the last battle, the kingdom has come. Jesus has returned. The renewal of the earth has begun. But there's this this group of dwarfs, uh, and their lives have been so characterized by skepticism and cynicism that that even when uh, the world is entering into its renewal, even at the last day, and they're surrounded by all the glories and, and all the things that are happening. It says that uh, they are still sitting in a stable in the darkness smelling manure. Lewis says, They simply cannot lift up their eyes and see the glory of what is around them. It's a very powerful portrayal, he says, 
of skepticism. He comments that they were so afraid of being taken in that they could no longer be taken out. You get it? That's the problem of cynicism. And and I think it works in two directions. I think it works in the direction of unbelieving, underbelieving, and I think it works for some of us as Christians in the direction of over-believing. We're afraid that God doesn't answer prayer, and so we sort of invent a prayer-answering world. God answering prayers in what Francis Schaeffer used to call a super-supernaturalistic way. And if it's not super-supernaturalistic, well, then God couldn't have been in it. And so there's this balance that we have to find as we live our way in this skeptical world. Tell you uh, a parable I learned when I was taking a philosophy of religion course one time. It's called The Invisible Gardener. Uh, John Wisdom wrote this parable, and it goes like this. Once upon a time, two explorers came upon a clearing in a jungle. And in that clearing, there were growing many flowers and many weeds. One explorer says, some gardener must tend this plot. And the other explorer disagrees. Oh, now, there's, there's no gardener. So they pitch their tents and they set watch and no gardener is ever seen. Well, the believer suggests, maybe he's an invisible gardener. So they set up a barbed wire fence, they electrify it, they patrol it with bloodhounds, but no shrieks ever suggest that some intruder received a shock, no movements of the wire ever betray an invisible climber, the bloodhounds never cry out. Yet still the believer is not convinced. But he he says there is a gardener. He's invisible, he's intangible, he's insensible to electric shocks, a gardener who has no scent, makes no sound, a gardener who comes secretly to look after the garden that he loves. And at that the skeptic cries out, Well now, what remains of your original assertion? How does what you call an invisible, intangible, eternally elusive gardener differ from an imaginary gardener or even from no gardener at all? That's the skeptic. And he's accusing us of our belief in an invisible God that we think is in control of the universe, but you can't touch him, touch him, you can't taste him, you can't see him, you can't smell him. How are we to respond to that kind of accusation in our skeptic world? Well, I think we can underbelieve, which is what John Wisdom does. I think we can over-respond, which is what some Christians do, looking for a, a, a miracle under every rock. Or I think we can find a biblical balance, like Hebrews chapter 11. In the spirit of Hebrews 11, that faith hall of fame, I'd like to suggest to you that there's a prayer hall of fame, and it goes something like this. By prayer, Abraham received the land of promise. You believe that? No special miracle there, is there? Took a long time, didn't it? By faith, by prayer, Abraham received the land of promise. By prayer... The walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Do you believe that? It's in the Bible. Do you believe Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down? By prayer, the Israelites were delivered from the Philistines at Mizpah with thunder. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? 
And time would fail me to talk of Moses who received help at the Red Sea, and David who escaped the treachery of Saul, and Solomon who received great wisdom as a result of prayer. Barren women became fruitful. Men and women alike were healed from diseases, saw loved ones cured, and countless witness miracles as a result of fervent prayer. Others, here's the other side, others faced jeers and flogging and were chained and put in prison. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute and persecuted and mistreated. And God did not seem to be answering their prayers. God had planned something better for them. And they learned to rest content in the prayer of the Savior who also prayed, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The world is not worthy of them. My challenge to you is to be real careful where you let your mind dwell. Don't become like a little dwarf that can't see God acting in the every ordinary course of events in your life. Don't be like God, that, like the little dwarves that can only smell the manure of this world. Recognize that God is at work in your life, sometimes by answering prayer in special supernatural ways, not always miraculous ways, but sometimes by appearing not to answer your prayer, by allowing you to endure circumstances that you wouldn't normally have to endure. Christians, I believe, have reason enough for believing that God acts in this world through prayer, and we have no reason either to underbelieve or to over-demand. We can be confident that our God is there. And that brings me to the fourth and final point real quickly. Uh, this passage can be summarized only if we understand Samuel's life and and the three key phrases that throughout Samuel's lifetime there was peace and he built an altar you can see it in verse oh let's say uh, the middle of verse 13 throughout Samuel's lifetime the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines and then if you look at verse 14 the last part of the verse and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And then the very last phrase in verse 17, And he built an altar there to the Lord. So Samuel, I think, it's the next slide is going to show you here. I think Samuel, who is judging Israel, stands for the word of God applied to all areas of life. Samuel made the circuit all around Israel. And he was the prophet that was just simply telling them what God expected of their life. Uh, In this circumstance, in that circumstance, in another circumstance, Samuel just routinely went through the life of Israel and said, this is what God says, this is what God says, this is what God says. That's the role Scripture applies in our life. And as a result of listening to that role, they found peace. And not only that, Samuel was able to build an altar, what I call an altar that endures. Rabbi Harold Kushner and when all you wanted is whenever all you ever wanted isn't good enough says our souls are hungry not for fame not for comfort not for wealth not for power those rewards create almost as many problems as they solve our souls are hungry for meaning for the sense that we have figured out how to live so that our lives matter so that the world will be at least a little bit different for my having 
passed through it. Somebody said somewhere, you know what? There are only two things that endure. God's people. God's world. Where are you investing your life? God's people. You invest in them. We're going to live together for all eternity. God's world. I thought this world was coming to an end. It is. But you know, everything that we do in this world is going to be added up together to that final world, that end world, and God's going to renovate it, and He's going to turn it into an eternally glorious state for us to inhabit. He's going to burn away the dross. He's going to keep the good. All the good efforts that we put in in our stewardship in this world, God will recognize and somehow, I think, embrace those in the planet, in the life, in the world that is to come. So then... How do we get back on track when we've allowed ourselves to get all tied up in knots again? Well, like I said, I don't think First Samuel has told us everything, but it's told us some of the key things. And I think four things that I, I find here are just simply this. We know that we're traveling in the right direction. When we're following Jesus, he's the ark at the very center of our life, right where he belongs. We know we're traveling in the right direction when we're admitting that we do stupid things. We're, we're repenting. And then we're getting on with it. We're getting over those things. We know that we're traveling in the right direction when we're practicing a balanced, believing prayer. Expecting God to act, but not always expecting Him to act in the way that I demand that He should. And we know that we're working, following God in the right way when we're ordering our life according to his word. This way, this way, I think for Samuel 7 says, there is rest. Without these things, well, the body becomes weak, the mind becomes mechanical, the emotions become raw, and the spirit becomes insensitive. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, I like this passage. It's a good passage. It's basic. It's fundamental. It has the ABCs. I ask God that uh, as one of your people that you would help me to uh, just remember the basics, the fundamentals. Help me to stay on track. Help me to follow you where you lead. Help me to find satisfaction and renewal in this world. In Jesus' name. I remind you that there will be an exit offering as you leave, and so don't forget that that offering is to be taken for the BBS treats. I was thinking uh, of a great passage uh, to conclude this message this morning, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 29, 30, and 31. He gives strength to the weary, increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow weary and tired, and young men stumble and fall. But those whose hope is in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. 